I have a dream that all men are created equal. G'day everyone, welcome back to your story. I'm your host Ian Kath, this is episode 33. We're moving into autumn here, the heat's gone out of summer, it's stunning weather, and there's still just a little bit of rain to keep everything green. You know, we've had a drought for many years, and the last year or so it's actually been quite lovely. Everything's greened up and it's actually uh, back to the way it used to be back in the old days. Today's show is... Because I was in Sydney recently, I was catching with a good friend, and while I was down there, I wanted to do some podcasting. So I put the word out amongst a few people and said, Hey, you're just in coming on the show. And today's show is exactly about meeting up with people and making connections and all that sort of thing. Social networking, we call it. But social networking is a little bit different to the way it used to be done in the old days. And today we have things like Facebook, Flickr, Twitter and all the other sort of things. Now, I'd like to ask you, if you're on any of those platforms, particularly Twitter, friend me. Let me know that you're out there. And let me know that you're actually listening to the show because occasionally I actually get a friend request from somebody and I actually don't know if you listen to the show. You're just another person who wants to follow me. So I actually look at your profile and if you seem interested, interesting, I'll follow you back. But Maybe you're actually somebody who listens to the show, so I'd actually really like to follow you. If So just let me know. Send me a quick note. Hey, listen to your story, and uh, I'll follow you back every single time. Guarantee it. My name on all the social networking platforms is Ian Kath. One word. And remember that Kath is spelt with a K, not a C like some people think. And there are other things that you can do too. Remember, the site is yourstorypodcast.com, and you can leave a comment. You can send me an email, and... Uh, all that sort of thing. The iTunes and the feed links are over on the site. If you haven't already got them, if you're listening directly off the site, you can go also and listen to it via iTunes. You can stumble me, you can dig me, it all helps. It's all part of the Google Juice thing. Yeah, if you want to write a blog post about somebody interesting that I've had a conversation with and link to it, that's really cool too. You know, That gives a bit of Google Juice value for everybody, you, me, the whole thing. And of course, I've got to give a bit of a plug to IOTA Promonet who supply the music. And if you like the music, go to IOTA and maybe consider buying the music so the artist gets a bit of a kickback. He gives it to me for nothing, and uh, I appreciate that. So I like to give them a bit of a plug. But let's move on to today's show. Like I said, today's show is all about social networking. What is social networking? It's a thing that a lot of people don't understand, and I think it's really very simple. It's a conversation. Simple as that. It's just that today, what we're doing is we're actually taking it online. Social networking is nothing new in my opinion. Now it's blogs, MySpace, Facebook, and recently Twitter with it going mainstream. Everybody's getting on Twitter's bandwagon. But it's really nothing different to the old village square. It's just that it's virtual now. 
And this is a place where we can all sit down and we can talk and we can talk one-on-one or one to a group or a group to one and we can actually create a conversation that is above the hum of the large corporations. If you want to get a bit of an idea, there's a book that came out many years ago, about nine years ago, called The Clue Train Manifesto. If you can dig up a copy of it, go and read that. Basically, the premise of the book is really very simple. It just says, markets are conversations. And if you think about the village square analogy again, basically that's what it is. People just sitting around talking to each other and recommending different things. So social networking is this new, quickly developing field that's happening online. And there are many, many people out there who claim to be experts at it. They make grandiose claims of how it works and how they've made a fortune out of it and all this sort of stuff. Frankly, I don't think too many people get it. I, I know I certainly don't get it. I've only got a very superficial overview of the way social networking works. But, you know, I'm sort of fairly active and I've got a, a few opinions. And globally, I don't think there's too many people who get it. And I think in Australia, there's only probably a good handful or two that really know what's going on. If you've been online doing the social networking thing, if you've been in marketing and public relations for about 10 years, I think you can say, and you've been doing it successfully, I think you can say that you've actually got a bit of experience and you've got a bit of a now, bit of nous on the way this world works. Well, this is that's what today's story is about. Because while I was in Sydney, I had an opportunity to go to the Single Origin Coffee Morning that happens every Friday morning in Surrey Hills. This is where a whole swag of people get together. It's actually a lot of fun. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I was there at the invitation of Gavin Heaton. And afterwards, we found a bit of a place to sit down and have a yarn and talk all things internet, social networking, company and personal PR, and this whole brave new world that we're all now involved in. Gavin talks and mentions the advantages and the opportunities available to everybody who wants to be involved in this world. And he shares with us a lot of his own personal experiences of and some of the challenging aspects of getting involved in posting and blogging and sharing and twittering and all these things that a lot of people actually don't understand at the moment. He explains much of what I've had to deal with in learning how to do this podcast and how I've had to learn how to get over putting on a public face and be prepared to put it all out there. But he's had to do the same and and a lot of people are quite challenged by that. It's you know, it's it's not anything new people for you feel a little bit reticent to actually post on a blog you know we've all felt that awkwardness before we've pressed the button and sent it off so we're all in the same situation and and the whole environment is moving so quickly nobody really knows where it's going or what it's evolving into but it is a conversation and it is fascinating and i love it and i want to learn more about it and this particular conversation i had with gavin taught me a great deal And I've thoroughly enjoyed editing it because I've had an opportunity to sit down and go over the conversation with him again while I've been editing it a couple times. And I've learned a great deal from it. If you think you're not involved in social networking on the web, you're wrong. You're listening to this podcast, so you actually are involved. Just finish the connection. Speak up. Make some comments. Get involved online. And you'll add to the richness for all of us. Here's Gavin's story. Sixth of March, two thousand eight. I'm sitting here with Gavin, who's also known as Servant of Chaos. That's me. Yeah, we're going to be talking about PR marketing. I think I'm not really sure, Gav. I'm not really sure who you are and what you're on about. So, 
tell me about yourself, mate. And I've been told by Tim Longhurst, who unfortunately we, we saw this morning, but he's too busy, so I won't be able to get him on the show this time around. He recommended you because he said, basically, you've got a brain the size of a planet, I've heard. So, <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about yourself. Tell me the Gavin story. Oh, the Gavin story. It's quite, quite long. I'll try and give you the short version. <laughs> what's, your, what's your passion? What's your most important thing? Uh, I guess the most important thing for me is connecting people. I find, and I like to connect people with ideas and finding ways of doing things. I'm, I'm not really a patient sort of person. I have a lot of patience, but I like, I like to do things. I like things to have outcomes. I like to achieve things. I like to, you know, if I'm bringing someone together, I want bring, want to bring people together where there's going to be surprise synergies. I guess. Okay. So you like to do things with a bit of a goal in mind. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Even if I don't know what that goal is, I know that, like, sometimes, you know, for example, with Tim, you know, I might introduce Tim to someone, not because I think that there's a specific reason for them to meet, but more of along the lines of, oh, well, no, there's a reason for them to meet. I don't know what that reason is, but I know that there's a connection that will benefit both. Yeah. So it's like um, this morning when, when Rachel turned up at, at coffee and, and then Christy from World, World Nomads came over and I said, oh, you two should meet. I don't right. know why yet, but you two should meet. And just to fill in those listening, this morning, it's Friday morning, and uh, I knew that Gavin invited me to come along to this coffee morning that always happens in Surrey Hills here in Sydney to uh, meet some people, some like-minded people, and find out what's going on. And about, what, 20, 22 people turned up for a coffee and a... <laughs> yeah. A bit of a catch-up, and you're you're the person behind this. You started this a couple of years ago as a way of people getting together. Yeah, it was well. I was involved in that very first meetup, so I came along, and there was about you know about eight or so of us that met over in North Sydney, actually, um, and we're all you know strategic planners or marketing planners or involved in marketing and advertising, and we'd been writing our own blogs and our own um, you know websites for some time. The opportunity to connect was something that we hadn't really thought about, and, and I remember. We, we're kind of apprehensive about you know turning up because it was it was quite some time ago about two two years or so ago and we Appreh- didn't know. apprehensive just because you didn't really know each other that's right we yeah. hadn't met we just knew knew each other from our writings and our comments on each other's blogs and so on you know, walking to a room where you don't know who is going to be there and what they would look like because back then you know no one was really putting photos of themselves on their blogs yeah. so we sort of walked into a cafe looked around and went which table do we sit at? And you know, someone waved. It was Emily, um, and and she said, "Come over." And are you for the? the are you this person? Are you the blogging? You're here for the blogging thing. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that's us. So, sat down and chatted. And um, it wasn't right until the end that one of the guys, Vando, um, had actually said to me, oh, "So what blog do you write?" And then, so we'd been at coffee for an hour, an hour and a half, and we just talked, but we didn't actually make the connection between who we were, what we wrote online and the people we were in real life. We were yeah. just talking about real life. And then at the end he said, oh, so what website do you write? And I said, oh, well, I write servantofchaos.com. And he was like, oh, you're Gavin. Oh, wow, that's really great. I'm... And, and it's like that recognition means that you bring that whole meeting and that acquaintance thing that accelerates so fast because in writing, you know, you give away secrets about yourself and you, give, you, know, you can't help but share aspects of your personality. And that is what's kind of exciting. That's what people, you know, who read your website connect with. That's that emotional connection. So when you do meet, and same with on Twitter, you know, you meet someone and you say, well, what, what's your name on Twitter? And oh, I'm Servant of Chaos. And they go, ah, I, I know you. We, know, we talk, yeah. you know, we've shared stuff. You've sent me stuff. You've, I've sent you stuff. And, 
How valid is that as far as a true interpersonal relationship, you know, when you've just got somebody online, you know, when you, before you've met them offline? Uh-huh. How, how valid is that as a relationship, do you think? Oh, hugely, hugely. I don't think, you know, we, when we talk about, you know, why do people blog or why do they use Twitter or why do they use any of these social media type networks... I'm often asked that same question, is it a real relationship? I think unless you participate, you don't actually understand how real it can be. And you know, so you've heard of you know, people meeting up on dating sites and, you know, and then they get married and they have you know, a long and happy life together. Mm. So the relationships are actually very real. But how that transforms into other aspects of your life is, is, is where it becomes fascinating. Because for, say, for my generation, is, is there is that, that difference between what is real life and what is online because online you know came into being you know when i was you know a, an adult already so but you know for younger people who are, who are have always been online now they don't see that distinction so often you know <laughs> young people go, or you know, younger people will say uh, why are you dividing the two you know what's what are you trying to achieve with that and it's like for me in, in a way it was different but now it's not now i'm the same i'm the same everywhere so if you develop a relationship online Mm -hmm. and that's a valid relationship is it more valid meeting them offline and adding a physicality to it yeah absolutely so what one of the things that is fascinating about online is that it drives offline so you know i write write about marketing and and advertising and so on and one of the things that i think a lot of brands don't quite understand is that the need for us to communicate and meet socially and in in real life is a fundamental human desire it's a fundamental human need to communicate and so you might meet someone online and you think, I really like this person, I want to meet you. And so it actually drives, it's just now, it's much easier to meet people who are of like mind because these communities coalesce online. So you are drawn to people who are of similar interests or have passions around the same things that you're passionate about. And online allows those things to become visible to others. And because of that visibility, it drives connection. And then that connection drives, let's take this to let's take this to another level yeah let's, yeah, yeah let's yeah. meet up for real yeah, yeah. so yeah and so that's yeah i agree i agree completely yeah. it's just interesting to hear you say what's in my mind so a good example is so last year i co-published a book called the age of conversation and we've we basically went a friend of mine had a has a blog and he said anyone want to write a business book here's here's your opportunity and i saw it and i thought this is a great idea it's called we are smarter than me and they, were, they published you know thousands of people as authors in a book and I thought that's great and it was all money to charity and so on but that will take a long time to produce and so I sent an email to Drew saying hey we could get together and do something like this we could get nine or ten smart people together really quickly write some stuff a chapter each publish it and then find a charity to donate the money to and then yeah what a great idea why don't we do this and so he wrote back to me and said why don't we go bigger why don't we get a hundred people to do this and so literally within three months, we went from having that idea to having 103 people contribute to a, a book that was then published and available online um, for you know, print on demand and so on okay. within three months. So we published the book. What was fascinating was it made 100 connections between 100 people. 
Mm. And then it multiplied that out. So every one person in that book was able to then communicate with all the other 99 or 102. Yeah. As it, as it, so it made this massive sort of internal social network, if you like. Not to mention who read it. Not to which mention is who read another it. larger circle. Exactly. Yeah. So then we, we took that to a, to a human level, if you like, and uh, Drew and Drew McClellan, who is uh, my co-publisher, and a couple of other folks uh, in the US, so Laurie Magno and Christina Curley, got together and said, let's turn this into a real-life event. So they came up with this idea called Blogger Social. And so last year they put together a Blogger Social in New York. Right. And they had 86 or 87 people from all over the world descend on New York for three days of talk. And it was, it was no business. It was just, these are people you already know. You've read their stuff. You've commented on their stuff. You've, you may have shared some sort of for, you know, phone call or whatever it is, but here's your chance to hang out with other bloggers. Yeah. And we had three days of fantastic meetups. And it was, it was amazing. It, you know, it really, there, was, there was a couple of people there that I was really keen to meet. And, and they were really keen to meet me. And we just got together and we all... We didn't have to learn about each other. We didn't have to break the ice. We didn't have... You know, it was... We already knew each other. Yeah. And that, that, I think for many of us, that was the real breakthrough because we were, you know, literally separated by, by you know, the Pacific Ocean. So coming together, finding those people in another country, in a specific location, and finding that you have so much in common so much interest so much even just personal affinity was was astounding it was a very you know fun and emotional time you know everyone just had a great big party for three days <laughs> so what's going on do you think eh? what's going on when you go from knowing somebody really quite intimately online you've developed this relationship you feel like you can share a lot of stuff but why is it more when you add the physical aspect I've actually, like you and I, you know, we've mm-hmm. had a few email exchanges mm-hmm. and I've read yours blog and you've listened to some of my podcasts, but now we're sitting here physically uh-huh. in contact. Why is that better again? What's going on there, do you think? Well, I think there's a professor of digital ethnography called um, Michael Wesch who works at the State University of Kansas and he has this great presentation on this very thing <laughs> at, at, where he goes to the Library of Congress in the US and he does like an hour-long presentation. You can find it on YouTube. He um, has this fantastic presentation where he talks about the history of how we got to where we are. He looks at what happened over the preceding 50 years. So what happened as suburbanisation hit our cities? What happened to people who live in the suburbs in these these houses, you know, the, the houses made of ticky-tacky? Yeah. What happened? You know what isolates, what connects, and so there was this whole fragmentation of community in real life. So you know people were moving into the suburbs, and there was no real community space there. There was no you know you're moving away from your family, you're moving away from your social groups, your schools, your networks, and so on. And then you were in this house, and you're probably there with you know it might be your family, so you have a family unit, but then you might know the neighbour, but you might not know two neighbours down. And so you've got this, this social dislocation at the same time as you have this rapid expansion of cities. Then you have TV. <laughs> and the TV was the thing that connected us because we were able to connect to the stories that we were telling about our lives. And that served to actually increase the isolation. A good manifestation of this is, you know, you go to work, you talk about the, sh- the shows that you watch on TV and so on. Mm-hmm. It's that common experience. But over time... That has just served to increasingly isolate us. And, we, and so we have all these people who are in, you know, look at the internet. So you have all these people at their computers seeking out people that they can communicate with. So there's a real fundamental shift about how do we, how do we actually stop being isolated? How do we find people with whom we can have shared experience? 
and the shared experience part of, of the internet and web 2.0 or social media or whatever you want to call it, that is what's driving a lot of this connection. So it's not that, it's, it's overcoming that isolation that has sort of, in a way, been enforced upon us by the longer working hours we have or the, the, you know, the increasing spaces between where we live and where, and where our friends live and, and so on. So the web now allows us to find people who share our interests, our passions and so on, and we don't have to be next to each other. We don't have to be there at the same time as each other. We can do it in the time which suits us, convenient, fits within our busy schedule when, you know, we've dropped the kids off from school or, you know, in between dinner and, you know, relaxation time or whatever it is, it's much more convenient. So there's a whole range of factors that are driving this. And then if the opportunity presents itself that we are in the same place, then great, let's meet. So, you know, you have the the emergence of these, these things like Twitter, which are you know, real-time based. And I'm, I'm thinking about what's just come out recently, um, Latitude. Get Google's Latitude, exactly. Latitude, which, which basically gives you a map with all your friends on it, and if they happen to be in the local area, you can contact them and say, hey, you're around the corner from me, let's go have a coffee. Exactly. I was just wondering, as you are telling that story, that the dislocation that we had during the 50s, 60s, 70s, where there was a fascination towards soaps, mm-hmm which gave us a false sense of maybe community because we're watching other stories, people's lives, so we had this fixation. Yes. As we're doing what... When we got online, what we were doing is searching out not the soap but the true stories. Correct. And and soaps replaced socialisation. Now we're looking for real socialisation online in our little ticky-tacky box. Yes. But we're now taking that offline. Yeah. Do you, do you, am I, yeah, yeah, am I no, reading you right? Yeah, absolutely. So storytelling is, you know, my blog is pretty much about storytelling, apart from all the theory and the other stuff that goes on there. It's how do, what, is, what, are the, what are our fundamental human stories that connect us? Because the way, the way that we connect, you know, is emotionally. You know, we're emotional beings. So finding a way of connecting, we've done this for thousands of years, and we do that through stories and storytelling. In broadcast world, you know, we have, like you said, a soap opera, um, sort of a compelling story. We can see a bit of ourselves in that and we make that emotional identification. We become hooked in and, mm. you know, and so on. What we've found also with, with this new media is that I can manifest my own sense of identity. I can choose the people who, who I want to share that identity with. So, you know, I can use my Facebook profile to provide certain access to certain things, like different photos and different stories and streams from my life, and use that to extend my relationships with people through that sharing, through that shared experience. There's a, a woman who writes a blog called Disambiguity, and uh, Lisa has a term called ambient intimacy. And ambient intimacy is all about sharing stuff that you don't know where it's going to go. So Twitter is a great example. Mm. So you'll often see people saying, just going to the dentist. Or here's a good example. I'm going to Bunnings to pick up some stuff. That's what I, one of the things that I often tweet. Go to Bunnings, pick up some stuff. And someone says, oh, yeah, you've got to call it the wonderful world of Bunnings because you get there and you buy stuff that you would never have thought you were going to buy. And so the whole conversation goes on around Bunnings. But then my birthday comes and my sister, who lives in Europe, sends me a Bunnings gift card. And I think, that is perfect. How did you know about that? You know, I, you know, I can easily spend 50 bucks at Bunnings. And she's like, well, I saw it on your Facebook status update that you were at Bunnings. I thought, oh. what a great idea. I'm going to get one of those online. So, you know, this, this card arrives from Europe with, you know, Bunnings. Um, like, that's, that's kind of cool. So what, it, what this ambient intimacy allows us to do is form those relationships, have you in our minds, 
even though we're not close to each other. We're not, we're separated by, you know, thousands of kilometres or, you know, 12 hour time zones and, and, and so on. But it doesn't mean that you're not being thought about by another person on the other side of the planet. So you, you have this rich experience of feeling like you know someone and they're in your mind, but you're not together. And I think this, the, then the opportunity presents itself to actually come face to face. And because you've had that intimate exchange, like I didn't know that we'd had that exchange. I didn't even know that she'd read that update. But then when it arrived, I was like, wow, that's quite something. Mm. That's quite transformative in, the way, in terms of the way that we um, manage our relationships with people. And by putting these things out there, in, in a way, you're broadcasting your life or you're streaming your life. By doing that, by sharing it, it allows other people to come close to you and you to get up close to other people. It's just that we don't get the, the feedback in person that, oh, we're sharing something. It's just that it, ha- it may happen in a delayed way, mm. in an asynchronous way. Mm. It doesn't mean it's not valid. It doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't mean it's not emotional. It was a, you know, it's a great way of connecting when there is no other way of connecting. So... Does the physical connection give us the immediately the immediate feedback yes. that online doesn't give us? Yeah. So you is know, that the advantage of the physical meetups? Do you think? Yeah. So you know, the physical thing is you get body language, you get warmth, and you know, it's easy to like, email is a good example. You often you'll receive an email and you think, well, oh, that's a bit harsh. <laughs> and then when you meet someone and say, oh, you know, I got your email and and so on, I just wanted to talk to you about it. They'll go, oh, did you read it that way? I didn't mean it in that. I didn't mean it in that mm. tone of voice. No. Like, well, there's no tone of voice in an email. So how do you how do you That's cope right. with tone? How do you cope with proximity? How do you cope with body language? You know, what is open, what is closed, and so on. This is something I'm just starting to explore: is um, the etiquette of online. Uh-huh. You know, what is the etiquette? Like with all caps. Yeah, yeah shouting, <laughs> shouting. You know, I've noticed uh, one on Twitter a little bit is uh, the asterisk comment asterisks to represent physicality. You know, Correct. so somebody. Like yeah, somebody will say, um, oh, I, I had an accident in the car. Asterix, facepalm, asterix, meaning, you know, that they've yeah. got duh. Ooh. You know, and, yeah. and I, I quite like that little bit of text put in there to add that physicality that you can't have expressing body language in yeah. text. It's clumsy, but it works. It is. I guess one of the, and I think this is why text is fascinating, because it's ubiquitous. It's easy to get, you know, you've got SMS, you've got text chat you've got email you've got a whole lot of text stuff and then you've got webcams which are great but you know not everyone has a webcam and not everyone has high speed internet access so that doesn't always work either so text is going finding innovative ways of using text storytelling through you know like for twitter where you have 140 characters how do you say anything meaningful in 140 characters or do you tell ongoing stories and and, you know how does that play out finding innovative ways of expressing yourself is it's like, you know, you're, I remember years ago they used to talk about, you know, on, on the internet no one knows you're a dog, so, you know, you can write, you know, expressive emails or you can write, uh, you know, have a great big personality even if you are a canine. Increasingly, you know, they, they, they then spoke about best-looking people on the internet were poets. You know, that's sort of changing now when we've got more, more of a visual medium in place. But what the visual thing is doing is it's reinforce. It's using the tra- traditional cues of understanding identity, uh, visual, you know, fa- face, face, face photos, um, avatars, yeah. avatars, um, and but a shift away from the cartoon style avatars mm. to actual real photos mm. um, is really and al- important. And also um, real names real instead names. of um, yeah, well, seven of chaos. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my my, I t- I've tagged myself as Ian Cath everywhere I can because I want to be. A, 
I want to identify myself. Yes. To, I've done that quite consciously rather than using nicknames. Yeah. yeah. So I think what that, what that does is it just reinforces the fact that you are a real person because mm. it's hard to tell. Are you a real person? Are you representing someone else? Are you creating a persona? Yeah. What is the real story there? And by having the photo, by having a bio- biography, by having a link to your website, by having all this stuff um, actually reinforces the sense that you are real. And that means that it opens the door to trust. And that's where the connections come. And I, you know, I think two years ago I wrote this blog post called, you know, um, Blogs are the New CV. So... Um, you know, I was hiring a lot of people in the job that I was working in and, um, you know, I'd see this resume come in and they'd say, oh, I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. And I'd think, well, if you're working in the online space, I should be able to find out about you. So I'd search. If I couldn't find you and you said you'd done all this stuff, then you don't even get in, an interview. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I can find you, then we can have, then I can actually find out about you. I can um, get a sense of not just what you do, who you are, but who you connect with. You know, what are you known for doing? How do you handle difficult situations? All that stuff. I can find out a lot of information on you um, just by the trail that, that you know, your online footprints leave. So how honest do people have to be now? <laughs> well, I don't think it's... Uh, I, I, think, I think that if you're not honest that you are found out because other people can also talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But also um, you said the footprints. You know, That's right. If you're not honest, if your CV is not honest, the footprints will reveal who you Absolutely. really are. Absolutely. And uh, so, if you say I'm really good at working with people, blah blah blah, and you do a search on your name and it says, you know, Gavin was really difficult to work with on this project. I don't know why. Blah 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 blah. Then, you know, one of the things that we know in in advertising is that you know is that seventy to eighty percent of people will take a recommendation from someone that they don't know over some advertising. So the trust network between what someone else says about you and what you're putting out there under your own auspices says a lot about you. Yeah. And so by understanding that that dynamic is shifting and changing and that, that you know, recommendations, that trust, that you know, reputation is really important and in an online space that it is so easily found out that, you know, if you are not acting in good faith, then that can be an issue. <laughs> so how much is this moving into the business world, this, this knowledge? Because you know, I, I think people, mm. unless you're a you know, say car salesman or, or a politician, you tend to, one-on-one with people, be generally fairly honest, mm-hmm. um, you know, within reason, yeah. making a broad statement. Yeah. But companies, far less so, because they've got you know, the corporation around them. You know, they don't necessarily have to be that honest. They can have all the fluff. <laughs> well, are they are companies, corporations, governments, are they starting to embrace some of this? Yeah, I think um, they have no choice. So I think... Um, what... <laughs> but are they embracing it? They may not have any choice, but are they, yeah. do they get it yet, do you think? Uh, sometimes. Sometimes they do. Do you, do you work with companies? Yes, I do. So I work for for a, a big company, and it's a, it's a, it's an interesting example. So I work for SAP, which is a global software company, and uh, they embraced communities quite some time ago. And they have a fairly large online community of developers and of business process people, and you know they have a particular focus. But they realise the value of those conversations because the people who use your stuff every day are going to be most passionate about it. And they might provide you with the best feedback in the world. They might not tell you what you want to hear, but they will tell you exactly what they think. And they'll tell you where things are wrong. And they'll tell you where things are right. And all those things. And it's completely honest because there's nothing in it for them. You know, if you can make something better for the the people who use 
your products or your services, then they will love you for it. And understanding that, you know, that, I guess that's what we talked about before, the, mm. the whole idea of the Clue Train Manifesto and how that transforms or ha- is in the process of continually transforming the way that consumers and businesses speak with each other and, and the relationships we have because of those conversations. Because in, as I said before, in the conversations that you share with someone, you give away more of yourself than you would otherwise realise that you are doing. <laughs> and that's the corporate self too? That's the corporate self too. So this whole idea that, you know, that, that I can stand behind my brand and not be, you know, not be personally responsible for the things that I'm saying is long gone. Wow. Um, you know, it's, it's forcing us. You know, but it, it's always been the same way. Like it really has. Like you, if you want to sell something, if you want to sell someone you know, some software or you want to sell them product, some hair shampoo, you know, whatever it is, you're more likely to buy it from someone that you like than from someone that you don't trust. So finding ways of, of bridging that gap. So you know that, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're going to buy something from, you're going to buy a car, you're going to go and buy it from someone that maybe is a friend of a friend because maybe that will mean you don't get ripped off quite so badly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you're using that trust network. So you go in and say, hi, I'm, I'm Gavin, I'm a friend of Ian's. He said I should come talk to you. I'm interested in that car. And it's like, right, this, that means that we've, we're, we're relying on our networks of people and connections and the trust and reputation between these different players to actually, you know, achieve something which is credible for all of us. You know, there's a win-win situation. Mm. So for, for, you know, in that exchange, you know, the car salesman gets, you know, a commission based on the friendship he has with you. He may not make as much as he otherwise would have, but it's a lead that he would never have otherwise had. That's so right. That's right. There are benefits. Is that improving compared to the way it used to be done? Like, do you go back 20 years ago mm-hmm. before the online world really sort of came about? Do you think that is now happening a lot more than back then? Yeah. So what, it, what the online world allows us to do is surface these things. So the, the networks that we already have are now visible to other people who may find value in that network. So LinkedIn is a good example. So a while back, you know, I, I was looking at some, some software for a particular purpose and I was thinking, I know about some, like three or four products that do this particular thing. We are smarter than me. You know, there, there's lots of people out there who know more about this stuff. So maybe I'll ask. So I put a question on LinkedIn and said, oh, I'm looking at this sort of software. I just want to know anyone's got pros and cons for different pieces. And this, this um, person responded to me who I'd never met, who was like you know, probably three or four removed in my network. And she said, yep, I've just been through the whole process myself uh, six months ago and I'm willing to share my, my research. I went, Fantastic, thanks. So I emailed her back and said, that's really great, thanks very much. And she sent through a 20-page report with all of her findings, step-by-step features, benefits, wow. all sort of stuff. And I thought, wow, now that is amazing. Like That would have taken me literally weeks to do myself. Mm-hmm. And I got for free. So now there's this enormous, I have a social debt, <laughs> which, you know, if she then asks for anything that I can help her with, I will help her with. Yeah. And because you're in a community, would you consider that you have a social debt to the community because of her and that it's not necessarily directly to her? Yeah. So the connect, so if, if I was to trace that connection, how did we come to, to this connection? I would owe a debt to the, the one, two, three steps in between. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So the next time I met up with, um, you know, um, so after I got that email, I sent off you know two emails saying, oh, I just um, met through such and such and such and such, blah blah blah. blah. Um, thanks 
for you know opening your network in that way yeah because i think it was actually a recommendation oh um, i don't know the answer to this but you know you should talk to cheryl yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah sort yeah. of thing um and, and i think that's profound because and ultimately i think that there seems to be almost like a social debt to everybody on linkedin in that case because yeah. they're part of the system yeah, um, I actually wrote about this the other night. It's a thing that I call um, social judgment. So how do we how do we make social judgments, and how and how does it work? Because interestingly, you know, we think of this as I'm doing someone a favour. So if I'm asking out there, I'm drawing upon the social capital that I have already created. So yeah. hopefully, I've provided some value into my community, and so I'm now going to spend some of that by asking a question or by asking a particular person. So if I want to get to um, Kevin Rudd, for example, how do I get to Kevin Rudd? And I might find that I've got to go through that person, that person and that person. So I'll ask that person directly, can I speak to to Kevin Rudd? Can you speak to someone on my behalf? But if you have an item of value that could be of value to Kevin Rudd, you can draw Kevin Rudd into your connections by putting stuff out there that will will hit his radar at some point. So that's, that's the, the reverse of this. So from a brand's point of view or from a marketing point of view, if you can find ways of adding value to your community, um, it attracts interest. And so rather than spending your social capital, you're actually creating social capital by providing value that other people can then use to build their own social capital, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, and it's, it's very much the pull and not the push. Correct. You know, like, here we are, we've got this widget, mm-hmm. and you put all the bells and whistles on it to draw the, the moths to the flame, rather than um, screaming at them through the t- TV. For yeah, so, and the, yeah. the interesting thing is, you don't know where those connections are, because if they're not absolutely clear and surf- on the surface, you don't know where your generosity may, may lead you, for example. Mm. But by, by doing, by creating, by giving... Maybe even without expectation of return. So you might create something of value, whether that's a blog post, whether it's a video, whether it's you know a podcast. Mm. You put it out there. You don't know who's going to listen to that or who's going to pass it on. You know, a good example is you know I presented at a, a conference you know a couple of years ago called Interesting South, and I I took the Clue Train Manifesto and I looked at it and I thought, what does it mean for a new generation? What does it mean through the eyes of a child? So I gave my kids um, you know my digital camera and they took photos. And I looked at the photos, and there's some really great photos. But they're all at funny angles, and they all have you know, a unique perspective in every single photo. And I thought, that is a different world. You know, they're growing up with the fact that you can take a photo and see what the photo is. They don't have to send it off for processing. They don't have to, you know, they can modify it in Photoshop. You know. And they're also seeing it through the filters of a child. Absolutely. So what is their world going to be like? How does the clue train fit to that? So I, I put, you know, took some of the top, the, the 99 theses of the clue train manifesto and um, applied it to these photographs. And so I took, you know, markets of conversations and put that up there. People of the world, blah, 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 blah. And started putting these photos up. And I did, did it and I liked it and I had good fun. It was five minutes long and off, off I went. Um, and then... So that's two years ago, and then you know, uh, about three or four months ago, I got a, um, an email from Chris Locke, who is one of the authors of the Clue Train Manifesto, and he said, I saw your, your presentation, I love it, this is awesome, this is exactly what we're talking about. And to me, that was like like two years later, but mm. still, that's awesome feedback. For, for Amazing praise, actually. That's right. And you go, yeah. wow, you know, the, actual, the people who inspired this heard about it, looked at it, 
and then responded and and yeah. made that connection. And there's sort of like this beautiful return as well because they put out the cliche manifesto not knowing what to expect <laughs> and they got returned by you producing that clip. Absolutely. So it's there's all this weird feedback loops happening. Yeah. Uh, which is developing what's happening. All of that's fascinating. And I have a real interest. I'm developing this massive interest in the socialisation of social networks, mm-hmm. basically, how it's interacting. And, and I actually say we're going back to the village. Yeah. Where is it getting wrong? Where, is, where are people breaking it? Where are they failing to get it? Where, what rules do they not get and where do, are they going to come unstuck? Where doesn't it work? You've explained very well where it works. What are the red flags that people aren't obeying? I don't know. I think it, I think it's there's still barriers to entry. I think that's the biggest hassle at the moment. So, you know, not everyone knows about how to use a computer. Not everyone feels comfortable using a computer. So therefore, they're not comfortable with, you know, maybe email. Then maybe they're not comfortable with Skype. Maybe they're not comfortable with. They certainly may not have ever heard of Twitter or mm. Facebook or MySpace or LinkedIn or any of these things. And so. Um, there's still a huge barrier to entry around that, I think. Um, but as that comes down, I think the biggest challenge is that we're not used to participating. And, um, you know, we're happy to watch, we're happy to observe, but actually participating is a whole other, um, I don't know, human um, activity that, that, you know, people don't always do stuff. It like, comes back to my idea, idea of... Um, if I'm going to be involved in something, I like to do, I like to see outcomes, I like to make things happen. And not everyone does. Some people are happy just to do as they're told. Some people are happy to be passive and consume content or consume TV or radio or whatever it is, or even look at things on YouTube. But will they actually make a video? Will they upload that? Will they comment on a blog? I remember my first comment on a blog. I was petrified. You know, I was writing. First time a, you did it. Yeah. Okay. On, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a blog that you know that I, whose author I really respected, a guy called Russell Davies. And I remember sitting there thinking, oh, do I really want to say this to Russell Davies? And I thought, well, yeah, all right, I do. So I, you know, went along and put my comment on, press submit, and I remember sort of agonising over pressing the button. And you know, after that. You know, then once you know, it, it, this is the thing: is it, you don't get that sense of excitement unless you are involved in it, and um, the trepidation, which also comes along with excitement. <laughs> um, but you know, when you get your first comment on your on your, on a blog post, it's like someone's reading it. Mm. Yes, remember, other than my family, <laughs> I remember sh- being shocked and awed that somebody would comment. Yeah. I am shocked and awed that people listen to this. Yeah, you know, yeah, that people actually download it. Yeah, and it's it. It's um, coming to groups with that sense of connectedness and coming to, to groups with that sense of that people know you, mm. despite the fact you've never met. Uh, I, I do um, uh, these talks every, every six months or so at um, the Macquarie Graduate School of Management on you know, new marketing. I do a guest lecture uh, as part of their MBA program. When I first started doing this a couple of years ago, I'd say, okay, who knows Flickr? Who knows MySpace? Who knows? And no hands. You know, it would be no hands. Now I go in and I say, okay, Flickr, yes. Twitter, yes. Yeah. And so it's my, the conversation is different. It's a very different perspective. But there's still this very different uh, level of involvement. So some people will participate. So we call it the, the one percenters, the one percent who actually participate and create content, the nine percent who actually 
do a bit of like commenting and commenting not, and so on, and then you've got the ninety percent who are not. Yes, yes passive consumers. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. So how do you convert those ninety percent into willing participants and so on? It's a real challenge to actually get that volume up. Well, the question I ask is, do you have to? Depends on what your outcome, what you're driving towards, I guess. But I guess from a, an author's point of view, if I'm writing something, it's really hard to know who's seeing stuff because, as I was saying, I go to this um, MBA course on there and I'm talking blah, 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 and then afterwards all these people came up and said, oh, you know, I've been reading your blog for you know, 12 months. And I'm like, wow, you should drop a comment. You know, I would really love to hear your point of view on something. And, oh, you know, I'm a bit shy about you know, telling you my, my thing and, or my point of view or I haven't got anything to add to this conversation or, or, or those sorts of things. And, it, and it's... Um, once people start to overcome that, then it's much easier. But it's those first few steps of actual participating of maybe starting your own blog, because it's really simple to start a blog. Um, but starting it and then sharing it with other people, because, you know, you're sharing, whether you're not or not, you're sharing yourself. And this is one of the things, is people go, well, I don't want people seeing my photos of my kids, or I don't want to see people's, people seeing photos of my stuff the books that i read or my ideas i'm a bit worried about you know my they're my my ideas you know that's mm-hmm. my thing so but overcoming those those things is what creates the connection it's the same with any any real meetup if you meet someone in real life you're looking for the sharing of, of or the generosity of spirit the sharing of ideas the sharing of conversation of time together of, of whatever it is um there has to be that exchange and if you're not exchanging then you're not participating fully in in a, in that experience so it's a real challenge. Is it that some people, you know, like you're saying 90% of consumers, is it that some people just aren't the sort of people who are fully engaged in society? I'm thinking, I'm thinking the classic in uh, my <laughs> analogy of the party uh, from previous post I wrote about Twitter is um, the wallflower. Mm-hmm. You know, they're sitting there on the side not participating in the party because they feel inherently a little bit shy. Mm-hmm. Is that a problem? You know, why do we need to convert those people? We don't need to convert them. Of course, um, you know, people can be them themselves. But of course, the, 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 the trick for participation is making, making it comfortable. You know, there are lots of reports you hear about you know, people getting involved in you know, slanging matches online and flame, um, wars. flame wars and all sorts of horrible stuff. And I think that the, the negative always overpowers the positive that's why you hear much more news about you know negative Mm. things and good things and it's really hard to tell a good story that's that's fundamentally one of the challenges how do you tell a good story and how to promote the the best side of things when it's really easy to say oh look at that that's terrible that's much more powerful from as a storytelling medium but there are benefits to to connection that that people don't otherwise realize and it's really hard to provide the space in which people can um, step up. So, for example, you know, I often say to, to my readers, you know, I'm looking for anyone who wants to do a guest post. <laughs> and so people, and so someone might send me a, an email saying, I've been thinking about doing that, but I'm not really sure if I could. And it's really interesting to sort of see that people who, who would have their, you know, you might meet them in real life and have very strong opinions. You say, would you yeah. do it? You might find the same with podcasts. Mm-hmm. You know, um, oh, would you like to come on and do a podcast? Some people might say, oh, no, or uh, it's not really what I do. And I was certainly along those lines as well um, when I first started. And my, my blog was you know, hidden behind you know, layers and layers of you know, anonymity, really. Um, you'd have to dig quite some way at first to find out that Gavin Heaton is the person behind Servant of Chaos, 
who actually writes the blog Servant of Chaos and the dom- owns the domain name Servant of Chaos. Like, was mm. much, and there was no photos of me and so mm. on. Now there's a photo of you on the, in the sidebar, That's isn't right. it? So, yeah. You know, what happens is, what happens is quite astounding because this desire to connect. So it all happened because I started writing for Marketing Profs, which is a US marketing online journal sort of thing. And um, Anne, who is the chief content officer, had written to me and said, send me a photo and a bio. And I was like, hmm, I don't really do photos and bios. I, you know, I made a point not to. And she said, well, if you want to write for us, then that's what you need to send us. So, you know, all right. So I grabbed a photo, sent it off, wrote a bio, sent it off, and then started writing for them. And did the same on my own blog. I thought, well, if it's out there, it should be on mine as well. So yeah. I put the photo there somewhere and I put the bio in and so on. And telling your own story is really hard. <laughs> um, telling someone else's story is much easier. But telling your own story in a way that doesn't make you feel self-conscious or like you're blowing your own trumpet or overblowing the importance of what it is that you do <laughs> um, is really kind of difficult. But the more that I did that, the more that I talked about who I was and how those ideas were real for me or things that were real in my own life. Um, the more photos I put up, the more I started talking about myself as Gavin Heaton rather than a servant of chaos. All that increased the traffic, the number of comments, the engagement that I had with the pe- people who were reading my blog. And suddenly it meant that I, I wouldn't have that same problem. Like when I turn up to a coffee shop and someone says, oh, which blog do you write? And they say, seven of chaos. They go, oh, right, well, I, I do know you after all. And that whole, that whole emergence of myself and my identity because at the end of the day you are who you are anyway mm. so whether you use an online medium for that or whether it's you know in real life um it just it's just the way that you are and so coming to to find yourself comfortable with that is the biggest challenge and um even if you are famous within a small community of maybe you know 50 people who read your your stuff at least those 50 people know you and they can find you and, and you can actually connect in some serious way because you have built up some level of trust. I, I can trust you enough to share my real name, to share you know, some of my real thoughts and um, maybe we can go and have a drink later together or you know, whatever it is. But that trust is really important and understanding that trust drives these connections and then thinking about you know, businesses, you know, how do they connect with this? Thinking that trust is built up between the people who work for your business and the people who buy from your business, not necessarily just because of that amorphous brand concept that we have over here in the background. It's it's the the combination, the overlap between these things that creates compelling stories around your business, around your personality, around your life. You know, that's that's where it, where it becomes really interesting. So I asked you before, where do people make the mistakes? Oh, where they make mistakes. Is Are you saying that they make mistakes because they don't reveal themselves, because they don't allow their company to show all the individuals within it, because they present themselves as this fictitious personality that they want to project, which we all can read isn't really real? Yeah, yeah. Is that where yeah. old marketing starts to fail? Yeah, it is. well, sort of. Um, like I'm thinking of the car salesman here with the loud jacket who just comes up, thrust in his hand in your face, and basically you know that at home he's not this person. Yeah, or maybe he is. Or, and if he is, be afraid and run the other way. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I remember meeting, working with some people and thinking, 
isn't it interesting the way that this woman you know that I used to work with Anne she was a completely different person when she was with her son and I, and I was like oh why don't you do that in the office you know why aren't you that person she said I don't care you know I'm, I care about my son I care about his life and I want him to achieve things in his life I'm quite happy to come to work and do as I'm told because then I can go home and create a life for my son and, and for my family and, and, and make that really good. And work is just an aspect of that. Whereas other people have, uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe a work-life balance, which is, which is different. But I think increasingly the way that we are, I'm a big fan of being the same person you are in any condition, that you, you don't have to play roles, you don't have to change who you are to fit in somewhere. And, you know, to a certain extent, sometimes that, that is, is necessary as well. But this whole idea of being this, treating people the way that you would like them to treat you if you knew, if they knew where you lived. <laughs> so, so, you know, maybe you wouldn't treat your customers so badly if they could find you at home. It's like, you know, you, yes. get, you, get, you get a phone call. And, and now they can, by the way, That's just right. in case you think you could That's couldn't. right. So, you, know, you get a phone call at 7 o'clock at night and you're just sitting down for dinner and they say, hi, Mr. Heaton, could we talk to you about some insurance, blah, 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 and I can't get a word in. And you stop and you think, I'd really like to, um, but maybe if you leave me your home number, I can call you back when you're off duty and we can talk about it when a time that's more convenient for me. <laughs> You know, if we can have those conversations, then it, it might transform the way that I feel about your business. Yes. And if I could find the people that I like to buy from, and they just happen to be, you know, fronting your business or selling your products, then I'm going to be much more likely to buy from someone I like and someone I feel comfortable with than someone who just comes up to me and trusts something in my face. So it's this whole shift away from being interper- impersonal to being personal, to being... Sure, still be professional. Do what you say you're going to do. Live by you know, nice rules. Play nice. Google has the, the motto, do no do evil. evil. Yeah. So that's a, that's a good starting point. But why not do good? <laughs> yeah, you know, and find ways to, to make that, to live those things and to incorporate that into every aspect of your life because you would do it at home anyway. You know? a, a good example is you know, would, you do, would you allow your kids to behave the way that you behave with other people? So, you know, yep. and if, if not, then maybe you need, need to change. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, like it's, I know, it's exactly. finding that, that uh, bringing that personality to life because the people, the only contact, contact that some people might have with your brand or your business is the people who ring them or the, or the, phone, or the receptionist. You know, you might ring a, a business and say, oh, I want to talk to such and such, and you get a receptionist who isn't really that helpful or isn't that interested or can't be bothered helping or whatever it is. That might be the end of that relationship mm-hmm. that you have with that business. So finding ways of allowing people to bring their personality a bit to business, finding ways to, for that to flourish, you know, in the interpersonal relationships that people build up um, is, is, is awesome, but hard. Yeah, and it is hard. And we've just been talking about a lot of practical things there. You work in the world online a lot. If you're mm-hmm. advising a company, you know, PR, advertising, that sort of stuff, how do they personalise their company, their people break down the firewall a lot of companies work behind firewalls don't they you know mm-hmm. so they won't mm-hmm. allow Flickr accounts or Facebook accounts for their stuff because they're frightened of information getting I mean, all sorts of weird stuff yes. goes on out there yes. you know how do you encourage in your role I mean, you mm-hmm. know, what you do of helping to break down some of these barriers I think it basically comes down to responsibility so or commitment if you like 
So if you're, if you're looking to buy something, you know that you're, that, that you're going to go and see some businesses and you want to spend some money. Why not allow businesses to make that easy for you to, to part with your cash if you're already wanting to buy? You, know, you're not, you go to a business, you're not expecting something for free, really. You, you know that there's a, they're in business for a reason. Yeah, it's going to be money. a trade. It's going to be a trade. So what is it of value that we can exchange? You have something cool that I want, great, then here's some money for it. But I'm going to buy that from the pe- people that I can trust and know or whatever it is. Hmm. So how do, we, how do companies facilitate those, those things? I think you, know, you have to find the right sort of person who can handle that. Um, uh, you know, once you start stepping out into the, into the social media space, it, becomes, it can be quite you know, rough and tumble because you have people with voices. People have loud voices. And they might just be, you know, someone sitting at home uh, on their computer, but they might speak in all capitals, you mm. know, and they might know a hundred other people who all speak in all capitals. Mm. And that might be a problem for you if you're not ready for it. So you need to have people who are happy to deal with difficult situations. Um, you need people who are well-versed in what the, you offer to the, to, the, to, to the world. And you have to be willing to listen to what people have to say to you. You can't just say... No, I don't agree. You have to say why you don't agree. You argue, put your point out there. You know, don't. It's they call it a conversational medium. You know, join the conversation. The conversation sometimes is a bit tough, but the conversation is there because people are passionate about what you've got or what you don't have or what you're not doing for them. If you can find a way of, and sometimes there are going to be people who are just, you know, they're trolls. You know, they yeah, they yeah. just come along, they pick a fight with anyone and everyone, yeah. and that's what yeah. that's their thing. Yeah, they're the only ones you do delete from your blog. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, so why I talk you, to them? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but but they're the vast majority. Minority. Exactly. So yeah. the people who take the time, like if we talk one nine ninety, one person takes the time out to write on your blog and say, "This is terrible." Blah blah blah. This is the situation I had. If you don't respond to that, it looks like you don't care. Mm. And then everyone else who comes to read it, so the other 99 people who come to, to it and read it, they think, why aren't they not responding to that? They don't, they don't have a position. Well, it's true. It's not true. What, it just causes that you know, negative position. And what you want to try and do is manage that. You want to say, well, it might be true for you. I'm really sorry if it is. But how can we fix this? What can we do? How, how, how can we remedy this situation? And I think... Um, by looking at what you can actually do. So I think this is the, the most amazing thing about online world is, you know, before we used to have brands that you could hide behind and call centres that you could only get in contact with us through a call centre, which was, you know, arm's length removed from arm's length removed from arm's length removed from the management. <laughs> Maybe now you can actually send a Twitter message to the CEO and say, what is going on here? Why do I have to put up with this? And they can come back going, I don't understand why you have to put up with this. Let me find out for you. Mm. But it's a resolution mechanism that collapses the context in which we normally operate. And so understanding that that context collapse is inherent part of working online and that you can't let things sit because if you let things sit, if you don't respond, then the echo chamber takes over because there's always going to be detractors. And the detractors have loud voices because negative news is mm. more powerful. So unless you're actually able to engage in that conversation and really turn it around, then you just end up with um, you know, an event like Jeff Jarvis's Dell Hell, you know, where the Dell batteries of, of laptops kept blowing up and, and caught, catching fire, and you know, it's spreading across. The, you know, all these people who use computers are saying, oh, is my laptop going to explode? Do I have to worry about this? And without Dell stepping in and saying, 
no, it's just this particular model, or no, um, this is what, or there's a product recall, but whatever it was, but without actually engaging with that, or even knowing that that conversation was taking place because you're not monitoring online conversations, it puts you at a severe disadvantage. I always love, love this one is, you know, go to, go to Google or go to Technorati and type in your brand name and say, you know, what are people saying about me out there? And just putting in and see. And oftentimes people will just, their jaw will drop. And I'll say, oh, I thought, because, you know, if you're working in marketing, you think you believe what you're doing. Mm. You know, everyone believes in what they're doing. So always, we always think that we're doing a great job for the world. And then you put your name, your name out there or your um, product name out there and then you'll find people doing all sorts of things that you never expected them to do or say things say, that you never yeah, expected them And you find that there might be a lot of detractors of right. what you think is a really good whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Have you got any um, stories of situations where you've actually seen people turn things around? Yeah, yeah. So Dell, Dell Hell is a good example. Mm-hmm. So they are able to, they put together a social media team and they started to actually reach out to people and say, oh, you're having this problem, tell me about it. Big Pond here in Australia, another good example. Uh, you know, they launched Big Pond, the Big Pond team on Twitter, and people would say, Big, hey, Big Pond team, I can't dial into the network, what is going wrong? You know, Telstra sucks, or whatever it, whatever it was. And the Big Pond team would just send a message back saying, bring 131 blah, 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 for help. That's not the answer. That's just a deflection. You're not actually providing any value in that exchange. And then, so then, you know, people would respond saying, what is this? You know, why are you responding that way? Blah, 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 blah. Now, they were looking for a conversational mm. response. They're looking mm. for action. They're looking for outcomes. Pretty quickly, I, I remember speaking to Mike Hickenbotham, who's a, the, the guy who's running the social media program for Telstra, and saying, you need to turn this around. You need to turn it around by, by doing things because Twitter is a resolution medium. If I want to know something, that's where I go. Mm. I go, there's all these smart folks out there. Why not use them? How do I do this? Who would, I, who would you recommend? Um, for you know broadband access, who would you recommend for you know cable TV? Who would you blah blah blah? What what new computer should I buy? Whatever whatever the question is, someone out there knows how to do it. Where can I find a font for my you know for Photoshop or whatever it is? And but but by looking at the outcomes, what do you want to achieve? Why are you investing your time in this? How can you make people's life and their experience with your brand better? It's a it's a great way of doing it. So as soon as they started doing that, saying not just deflecting it, saying let me find out for you. Send a direct message. Put a message back out there saying, oh, sorry to hear that. Let me check on the outages. I'll send you a direct message, a DM. And so then they'd send through a direct message saying, can you send me your account numbers? Here's my email address. I'll chase it up for you. So direct resolution and responsibility commitment to achieving something. And sometimes it doesn't happen straight away. You know, sometimes it takes, you know, an extra few hours and you'll still get some of those conversations. But they changed that conversation very quickly around what was happening in public because it can get very shouty in there and it can echo around. And as soon as one person puts their hand up and saying, I don't think this is very good, this is not a good experience, everyone else goes, yeah, well, I've been putting up with it for ages, mm. but now I agree. Mm. Yeah. I have the same problem. And once we have, we have a, a shared, shared, shared problem, we have a relationship. And, and, and if we've got an adversary that's right. that we want to stand up against, all of a sudden we've got power. You've got it. Yeah. And then the revolution rolls on. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've, I've had a similar experience where um, basically I, somebody did me an injustice on, on Twitter and I just, and I, instead of sending this person a direct response, I actually put it out as a, an app response, an mm-hmm. open response, because I wanted other people to see that I'd been offended. Uh-huh. And so I, I chose 
consciously not to yes. make it private because I wanted this information out there. And I had a couple of responses back about it. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a case of, you know, this is not appropriate. And she, she also responded back to me uh, with an ad response apologising. So it, uh -huh. that had the remedial effect as well. Yes, yes. In the public, public mind. I think it's profound. Yeah, absolutely. I've always found that um, the way that people behave, the way they act under pressure, tells you a lot about their character, tells you about what they stand for and how they will treat people. And I'm always... Does that include companies? Absolutely, absolutely. And so if you look at you know, how people do deal with difficult situations, and they happen online all the time, but how they, how they cope with that, how they work under pressure, the things that they do, the things they say, says a lot not just about you and about them, but about the way they treat anyone else. The cool thing is that if you can find someone who's able to take on those responsibilities and those commitments and, and turn it around, in the online space, if they're doing it in public, it, it speaks volumes about, about their brand or about their business or about their personal professionalism. Mm. And by doing it in a public sphere, to say, oh, I'm sorry, that was wrong, I shouldn't have done that, you know, I'm responsible for that and so on. It, it's it's a profound change from the blame shifting that we see almost everywhere else mm. in politics, in business. Do you think it gives them credibility? Absolutely, it does. I remember when I remember when I was working at IBM years ago, and I was working on this big project. It was the first big project that I was working on, and we did a few things wrong. We didn't follow the processes because we didn't know the, the proper processes. We still achieved everything we needed to achieve. It was a great project, mm. but we got to the end of it, and we got hauled in front of this big committee to say what this was done wrongly what are you doing about it who was responsible and i remember thinking well, this could get interesting and i'm there with you know three other project managers and then now you know big program manager who was who was there running the whole thing and they they just kept wheeling out who did this who's responsible what are you going to do about it and for everything so it got, got down to my part who did this blah, blah blah and i was about to put my hand up and david the guy next to me just put his hand up said i'm the program manager that was my responsibility I should have done it. I didn't do it. I'm fixing it. And I was amazed. I thought, wow, that's... Like, you didn't have to do that. I was, I was willing to take that responsibility. I yeah. did do that. Yeah. I didn't know about it. But he went, no, no, this is my thing. I should have known. I didn't know. And that's what I'm here for. And we're going to fix that. For me, that was a real turning point in my understanding of how big business works, how big business should work maybe <laughs> and uh, what benefit it can have by taking responsibility for, for things because it meant that you know, he, was, he was then focusing on the things that he needed to do but then at the same time you knew you were in trouble so you could go and figure out your own things that you needed to do to make sure you were never in that situation again and I bet imagine you busted your ass to make That's sure right. that the job was fixed to <laughs> save his ass which saved your ass absolutely yeah. I was reflecting recently on in a blog post if you make an error the appropriate etiquette is not to delete the error and rewrite yeah. it it's to strike it through yes and then rewrite it so everybody can see the error that you made yes and the fact that you've corrected it now that's counterintuitive isn't it you know mm. hide it and then nobody else will know especially people who come along later who yes. never knew about it they, yes. they would never be any of the wiser but here you are actually leaving your error for perpetuity it's a bit of a risk, isn't it? But it seems to actually give you more credibility long term. Yeah. It's a very different way of operating. It is. It is. It's not like putting out a second edition with corrections. It's putting out <laughs> the second edition with the errors still in place. That's right. That's right. Yeah. What it does, you know, we're, we're so used to seeing things that are supposed to be perfect. You know, books that are 
you know, have no spelling mistakes, you know, or photos that are perfect or, you know, whatever it is. But it's that, that imperfection, the fact that there are humans involved and that not everything can be perfect adds additional value. You know, it adds flavour. It, it adds, you know, tenacity and gives you a sense of someone's commitment to something, to, to telling the truth maybe. So it's, it's, it is fascinating. Yes, yes, yeah. I was just thinking it's we've moved away from the corporate age where everything is perfect to the human age mm. where we embrace the imperfections of humanity and we actually find that wonderful. Yeah, yeah, because we, we can all relate to it. You know, <laughs> you know, made a mistake here or there. And, really, uh, have you? Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> happens from time to time. <laughs> uh, I, th- I, th- I think this has been brilliant. I think, you know, there are, I like my head swimming in amongst this, <laughs> you know. It's just absolutely swimming. I think there's a huge amount of information in here. Mm. And it's all um, social media type stuff, you know, which is such a, a new, rare unusual animal that I don't think a lot of people have got a grasp of it. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I find um, that I talk about it and I, and because I've been involved in this for, you know, probably 10 or 10 odd years, I just know stuff. I just, you know, I've been, I've done a lot of things and I've been involved in a lot of things and I, I'm happy to be involved in things and experiment. I'm, you know, I, you know, do things sometimes I think, oh, is this going to be, I don't know where this is going to go, but, you know, it's part of that. Um, putting it out there sort of thing because for me I, I find it difficult to recommend someone else do it if I haven't done it myself mm. if I go oh, maybe you should just try this if I haven't tried it myself how can I how can I recommend it how can I say this is the problem you might face or this is the you know I'd like to know those things too I I tend to if something you know, something comes along and I think it's worth having a look at but I, I held off blogging for years I knew about blogging and I thought it was a fad <laughs> yeah, yeah, and now I've been doing it for three years. Yeah. So it's like it's like mobile phones and the internet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're all fads, mate. Yeah, Gavin, what, what, what is what does all this mean in this world? Where are we going? You know, well, I defy you to answer that one. But <laughs> but uh, how do you, where we're sitting in early two thousand and nine? Where does this potpourri sit? I think it's something that I'm fascinated about at the moment is this idea of social judgment. And so social judgment basically means that you make decisions and they, they, can, be, they can be serious decisions, um, but you make decisions based not on what you know, but on who you know and how much you trust them. So for example, in Facebook, I get a friend request and it comes in and says, hi Gavin, can we be friends? And I think, I don't know you. But who do I know that knows you? And how much do I trust them? And this is this, this is, it, it's, it happens, there's twos and fro's to this all the time. You're always constantly re-evaluating um, the level of trust that you have with different people. And so, you know, it might be one person, I know that they, they, they just friend everyone, I don't trust them. But this other person is very selective. Now, if this is a medium in which I need to ensure trust goes into my network, then I'm going to think very seriously about whether to say yes or no. I'm going to think very carefully about what I share with you and what I don't share with you because there are still there's still a lot of people out there. You know, there's four billion people on the planet. So how how many of these people do I want to share my my life with, um, and how do I manage that? I can't do that on my own. I have that this Dunbar what's called a Dunbar number, which is 150, and 150 is supposed to be the number of relationships you can handle at any one time. Right. Um, but but you know I know more than 150 people, and I have good relationships with more than 150 people. So how does that translate? And it translates and it's managed by the fact that I have trust networks in place. So 
this social judgment. I, I'm making a judgment based on not just who I know, what I know, and what I know about them, how much I trust them, and then whether I would take recommendations from them. So some people are going, I'm going to trust more. If a business or a brand or something comes at me from a side angle and says, oh, Gavin has, for example, you got, got in contact with me after talking to Tim. So you obviously made a, a judgment there that you know, Tim is someone you could trust and that mm. he would lead you in a, a good story. And vice versa, because you knew that I knew Tim. That's right. That gave me some more credibility for you. That's right. Yeah. Whereas if it was just some person that said, oh, you know, I'd like to talk to you, it's like, well, I'm sort of busy. I've got... Yeah. commitments and how would I fit this in it eases, eases, those, convers- eases those conversations but also opens doors mm. and this has always been the case but it accelerates now because we are in a, a, a multifaceted and a multi-connected state and the more that these networks grow um, we're going to increasingly rely on these trust networks about how we cre- and understanding how we create and make and maintain social judgments and then the, and also understanding that that shifts in time and that um, social capital that you use up and that you accumulate and that you, that you expend and that you invest, all these economies that are entering our lives on a, on a social but professional and a, maybe even a political level, understanding those mechanisms is vital, I think, for businesses going forward. It's vital for people as personal brands, if you like, but also to understand that we are who we connect with, who we live with, and how, we, and how we behave online is as much a part of our identity as the fact that, you know, I have a business card or that I live in a certain place or that I drive a certain car. It says more about me, who I'm connected with and who trusts me than anything else. That is a stunning way to wrap this up, Gavin. <laughs> that, that sums it up beautifully. You like that? Oh, I good. like that a great deal. Thank you very much for coming on your story and sharing it with me. Mm, thanks for us. having me. Bye. Thank you.